Patrick, and uh, I'm one of the church planters that came on staff uh, just a few weeks ago. And uh, it's been a privilege to get to know many of you in the room. And so excited to see you here again this morning and to share God's word. Uh, we're going to continue our series in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 38. But before we jump into that, I just wonder, as I'm, I'm new here in town, I'm new on staff, I just wonder if you ever feel any of these ways. Have you ever felt that God is absent? Maybe you look on social media and you, um, you see people around you who aren't following God, getting the things that you want. You're following the Lord, you're reading your Bible, you're walking with him, but you're not getting those things, but they are. Maybe, maybe it's, it's not getting something that you want, but maybe, maybe it's overcoming sin. Maybe there's a sin that you just can't get to go away. And you just keep finding yourself struggling with this same sin, but your friends who are walking with Jesus, are actually overcoming that sin. And you look at them and you're like, how, wh why are they able to, but I can't. Maybe, maybe it's that you are spending day after day reading God's word. You're walking with him, you're praying, you're singing. But God seems far away. Even in the midst of you spending so much time pursuing him and looking for him, he feels distant. Have you ever felt unseen or unheard or, or left alone to yourself? Or, or maybe you found yourself so busy with life that you're giving yourself to everyone and to everything, and the last person you think about is God himself. Where would you say you struggle with these things? I, I think that in Genesis chapter 38, there is an idea here that if we will see it this morning, they will give us hope in each one of these situations. And I'm going to start off just out of the gate giving you my big idea. The big idea from Genesis 38 is even if God seems absent, he is still working. Even if God seems absent, he is still working. Most people love a great mystery. We love to see pieces come together and be able to see a puzzle that you're looking at it and you're like, I have no idea how this is gonna make any sense by the end of this show, by the end of this puzzle that I'm putting together, by the end of whatever story it is you're reading. We love to see the pieces come together. And Genesis 38 really is a mystery, but I, I think that there's a mystery in this and the mystery is this, like why is this here? Why is Genesis 38 in the Bible? Even last week, Ryan introduced to us the story of Joseph and, and seeing the story of Joseph. And he even said, hey, the rest of the book of Genesis is going to be looking at Joseph. But chapter 38 stops looking at Joseph and turns over to Judah. So think about it. Back to the beginning of this series, we, we started this series in the book of Genesis. We were in Genesis chapter 3. We, we talked about one who was going to come who would reverse the curse of sin. Now, now people that are hearing this book of Genesis being read for the very first time or repeatedly, they don't know how the story ends. They don't have the New Testament. They don't know that this actually is fulfilled in Jesus. They don't have all those things that we have. So they have a tension that we don't have. So I want you to try to put yourself in that tension this morning and, and think back to Genesis chapter 3 when God says he is going to send one who will reverse this curse. And, and all throughout the book of Genesis we've seen, is this person going to be it? 
for the normal reader, the original reader, is this person going to be the one that's going to deliver us? Is this going to be the just one? No, that's not the one. Is this person going to be the one? No, that's not the one. Is this person going to be the one? No, that's not the one either. And the further that we get away from Abraham, the harder it is to feel like God is actually still working to bless the whole, whole world through Abraham's descendants. And he's actually not forgotten his promise back in Genesis chapter 3. We think about the story of the sons that we've looked at the last few weeks, and we, we think about, is, is it going to be through any of Jacob's sons with Leah? Is it, is it going to be Reuben? No, Reuben does this sinful thing. Is, is it going to be Simeon? No, it's not going to be Simeon. Is it going to be Levi? No, it's not any of these first three sons. So will it be Judah? Will Judah be the one who will actually deliver? Is he going to be the just one? Is people hearing this are, are, are anticipating this one coming that's going to reverse this curse. Is Judah going to be it? And we start off looking at the story of Joseph, and we see Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers and going back to their father and taking a coat back to him and identifying him as him being dead, even though he's actually alive. And we hear that, and we're like, what's going to happen next to Joseph? And then the book of Genesis says, oh, wait a minute, let's pause that conversation. Let's go over and let's focus on Judah. I want you to picture it like this. In a few weeks, there's going to be a football game here in town. The University of Alabama will come in town and play the University of Florida. I want you to picture it like this. It's the very end of the game. There's 10 seconds left in the clock. Florida has the ball on the goal line. It's, it's third and 10 with 10 seconds to go. They're down six points. Can't kick a field goal, but got the ball. And the ball is snapped. And everyone is watching, anticipating what is going to happen. And then you all have that one friend who hits the remote and changes the channel in the midst of this moment. You're like, what, what happened? What's going to happen? Turn it back. Turn it back. I want us to see this morning that that's what the hearers would have originally felt with this. They would felt, hey, let's, let's turn it back. Let's see what's happening with Joseph. And God's saying, hey, before we get there, let's look at Judah. Let's see what's happening in the life of Judah. So again, as we walk through this, let's remember that even if God seems absent, he is still working. And that is why we jump to Judah before seeing the rest of the story of Joseph. Before we read verse 1, would you, would you guys just pray with me? Father, thank you so much for Genesis 38. Thank you for the tension that is in this text that, God, we look at and we go, why is this here in this passage? God, would you bring revelation to us today? Would you allow the, your word to speak so clearly to us to see why this text is here and why it matters for us? And that we would see that you are always working regardless of how we feel or our circumstances that we find ourselves in. Would you be glorified in Christ's name? Amen. Beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 38, it says this. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of Canaanite named Shua. He took her as his wife, slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son and named him Ur. Now, let's pause there. Listen, last time we saw Judah, Judah was the brother who had the bright idea. Hey, let's not... 
kill our brother, let's sell him into slavery, and let's take his coat and let's send it back to our father, and we, we can put dip it in blood and let the father examine it and see that it is actually his. But, but here we see that at this time, he's, he's no longer with his brothers. He's no longer in the same land. He's in a different place. And when he's in this different place, he sees this woman. He wants to marry this woman. And this is a problem. And the reason why this is a problem is because she was a Canaanite woman. And a Canaanite woman who would have had a family who had and worshipped other gods. Now, let me just pause here for just a moment and say this. People have misused this passage that we're speaking about this morning to, to say that interracial marriage is sinful. And that's just an abuse of this text. It's not what the text is saying. The whole purpose of this has nothing to do with the outward color of skin, but instead has to do with worshipping of false gods. And so that being said, why is this such a big deal? It's such a big deal because as they have a family, what's going to happen? There's going to be division in their family. What God will they serve? Will it be the God of Israel or will it be the Canaanite gods? We're going to see later that this causes problem for Judah himself. As we look in this story, and I'm not going to read every verse here to kind of jump around through this time, but we see that even in his foolish thinking of marrying this Canaanite woman, God blesses his wife's womb three separate times. Three separate times. The first son, he is so wicked. The text doesn't tell us why, but he is so wicked that God strikes him dead. But before God strikes him dead, he marries a woman, and her name is Tamar. Now, Tamar finds herself in an interesting spot here. In this time, there was this thing called a Leverite marriage or a Leverite marriage. This marriage meant that if you had a if a father-in-law had a daughter-in-law and the first husband died and the other husbands were not yet married, then the second husband, the second son, would now become the husband of this daughter-in-law. So the first husband's married to her. He dies. He's gone out of the picture. You've got Tamar left. She's got a second and third child that's waiting. So he's saying, hey, you need to marry her. Well, the challenge of that was he stood a lot to lose by marrying her. If he marries her and she has children, the children's name that goes on is not his, but his older brother. And so he's like, hey, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to gratify myself sexually with this woman without the responsibility that's given to me as a husband. I'm going to do that. And as I do that, I will get what I want without any responsibility. And we see that God had not intended intimacy to function this way that it should be intimacy with responsibility and he's saying i want intimacy without responsibility so guess what happens to him boom god strikes him dead too so up until this point in the book of genesis up at this point god has never struck a person dead he struck people like groups of people but he's never struck a person just a single person dead and now we're looking at Judah. Is Judah the one who's going to bring this deliverance? He's going to be the one that's going to be the just one. And he already has two sons that are dead before we ever get into the story. And we're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. Like, is there going to be a hope? Like, what? Can we go back to Joseph? Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not really liking this story about God striking people dead. This is not as fun. But due to his self-gratification, God kills him. Now, let's jump back in in verse 11 and see what's happening with this third son. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. 
Now, we read this, and we don't quite understand some of the, the details of this Leverett marriage and how it would put her in this awkward situation. But, but literally, she has nowhere to go. Like, she, she has herself, she's, she's earmarked to a, a man who she can't marry because her father-in-law is saying no. Judah here is buying time because instead of looking at his son's sins and saying, hey, that's why they died, he's saying, man, this woman, there must be something about her that is causing my sons to die. So I don't want to lose my last son, so I'm going to hold him to myself. He tricks her and tells her that if she will go away for a few years, then, he, then when he gets of a certain age, that she can come back then and marry him. But this whole section, this whole, this whole chapter, chapter 38 of Genesis, only mentions God's name twice. And when it mentions God's name, it is mentioning it in him killing people. So here's Tamar, this widow who has nowhere to go. She doesn't belong anywhere in society. She, she goes back to her family, but her family doesn't really have a place for her there because she's supposed to be married, and she's supposed to be going on to be with another family and carrying on a lineage. And so we have this great tension here. It's like, what is God doing? How long will Tamar have to wait before she can have her place back in society? Our first clue this morning in us solving this mystery of why is this story interrupting the story of Joseph and why does it matter for us is this. Even if God seems absent, he is still working in spite of disobedience. He is still working in spite of disobedience. There's nothing that we can do to stop God from working behind the scenes. We may not always feel it. We may not always see it, but God is always working. Let me illustrate it this way. There's a misconception about the Bible and culture in general. And, and people talk about the Bible that you can quickly tell they know nothing of the Word of God if you just listen to it for a moment. If they tell you, hey, if I was talking to somebody and they said, hey, Patrick, you know, the Bible, it's just full of all these, like, upstanding characters, like all these people that have, their, have their, all their lives are together. And you know what? I just can't live up to their standards. I can't, I can't do that. So I just don't read the Bible. I don't go to church because there's too many people that have it together in the Bible. Like, how far did you get? Did you start it? Where did you start? Because, because it didn't take very long. It just took a few chapters for us to see that man left himself, chooses sin. And the problem is, is we, we desire to see in the Scripture a hero. When we read it, we, want, we, we feel the injustice. We feel the, the, the tension. And we want to see a hero. But the hero is not in these people. We look and generation after generation after generation is failure and failure and failure. Where will this just one come from? What will this just one look like? You see, the, the people in the Bible, I firmly believe the reason why God uses messed up people all throughout the Bible and works in spite of that is because we're all a bunch of messed up people. And we all have our great problems and we are messy and God is not afraid of our mess. And so I would encourage you as you, as you look at the scripture and you see these messed up people, don't look at them and be like, hey, you're an idiot. Because when I see my own life, I'm like, hey, I'm an idiot. Like, I do some of the same things that they're doing. How, 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 can, how can I choose to operate this way knowing that God has saved me and changed me and, and, and transformed me? But don't think about the people in the Bible being all moral, upstanding characters, but instead look at them as broken and messy people and let that be an encouragement to you that God is working in spite of disobedience. 
Another, another challenge that we see as we look at the Bible or look at God. So the first one was how we view people in the Bible. The other one was how people view God. Right now it's July. Some people celebrate Christmas in July. And I, I want to say that some people treat God like he's Santa Claus. We treat God like he's Santa Claus and then we say, like Santa Claus, he's, he's making a list. He's checking his trucks. He's going to see who's naughty or nice. And we think with God, if we do good things, then God's going to be satisfied with us. And if we do bad things, then God's going to be displeased with us. But the problem with that is left to ourselves, no one is on the nice list. We are all separated from God. We, we, what we deserve is what we will get, and that is condemnation. What we will get is separation from God. But God is still working in spite of our disobedience, and he is working in this story to help relieve this tension that we saw start back in Genesis chapter 3. And he's going to show us through this very passage, if we look forward, his solution to this. So even if God seems absent, he is still working in spite of disobedience. So I got to ask a dumb question. The dumb question is this. If God is working in spite of our sinfulness, then should we just sin? Like, I, I know God's, God, he's working behind the scenes and he's going to work out his plan no matter what. So I, so I just, just sin more? No, we shouldn't sin more because we know God is doing this. We see in this passage some, some very strong warnings against God looking at sin. He literally killed people because they were being sinful. So we see God, it's not that he's not taking sin serious, but that he is not dependent upon our actions for his work. Even if we are struggling in sin, God is still working. And he is writing a story. His story has already been written, and we are just being able to see it come together piece by piece. We see that Judah's first two sons are taken away because of their sinfulness. We see that God is still working. So, so what are some sins from this story that we should avoid? Can I just like press in eye level for just a few moments here. I know I'm up on the stage and I'm not talking to you, but let's just pretend we're sitting at a coffee shop or a, a restaurant and we're across the table from each other and you are, are in a situation where you are considered dating. You are th- talking about dating this person. Can I just say to you, would you make the primary focus of your decision of whether to date this person or not, not be based on whether you think they're hot or cute or you think that they're funny or smart, but instead it would be based on do they know Jesus? Because in this passage we see Judah making this choice of marrying this other woman leads to some great problems. It leads to some destruction in their marriage and leads to sin that he will do later in this passage that we will see. But if you are dating someone and you, and you don't know whether they're a believer, I would encourage you, if you're not dating a believer, you're moving towards marriage or you're just giving your heart away. And so would you not do that? Would you instead say, hey, if they're not a believer, I need to really consider what I'm doing with my life. Second, we see that Judas, Judas' son used God's gift of sex outside of God's design. And, and we must see that any misuse of God's gift of sex outside of marriage is sin. He wanted gratification without responsibility. Now, I, I, I know that I, I've been in church for a long time, and, and I've never met someone who said, hey, Patrick, you know what? My, my objective today is to ruin my life. My objective today is to turn my world upside down and for all the years the rest of my life that I'm going to leave consequences for the decisions that I make today. But what I have seen is no one's made that comment, but I've seen their actions do that. 
And we see this on a regular basis with pornography, even among believers, struggling and wrestling with pornography, looking at this, wanting the sexual gratification without responsibility. But can I just say, some of you say, hey, you know what? I'll never go too far when it comes to gratifying myself in this way. I'll never, I'll never go that far. When I lived in Omaha, I had a friend who would have made that same statement. And he made one bad decision to leave a door open with someone of the opposite sex. And it led to another door being open and another door being open and another door being open until he had a full-blown affair. It wasn't emotional. It was just physical. And even in that moment of, it, of him saying, hey, it wasn't emotional, it was just physical, he would have never said, now this guy is a believer, him and his wife are still married, and he is still pursuing Christ today, but he's having to deal with the consequences of that. No one that I've known in ministry said, hey, today is the day I will do this. But instead, it was small choices along the way. So if you are here and you are struggling to miss you, God's design for sex and intimacy, would you recognize your sin? Turn to God in repentance. He is not waiting on you to stop before he works. He is working in your life to bring about repentance. He will help you fight the sin. You are either flirting with sin or you are fighting with it. Would you choose to fight? Verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Dulamite, went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. After a long time here indicates that the third son, he would have been of age. But you don't see him marrying Tamar here. And, and, and when we read this, again, we don't realize that Tamar, literally every day of her life, she got up and she put on a garment that made her be marked to everyone around that she was a widow. Every day was a reminder, I am a widow and I am not wanted. Every day, day in and day out. But in this passage, she's trying to figure out, what can I do? Where can I find hope? How can I change the situation that I am? What will she do? Let's look at verses 13 through 23. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that through, though Sheila had grown up, he, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said to her, Come, let me sleep with you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat for my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave me something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, Your signet ring, your cord, and your staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Dulamite in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at Enum? There has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Dulamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said there's been no prostitute. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. Finally, Tamar has a plan. She knows that his wife is dead. 
She is no longer, uh, Judah's wife is no longer living. She has a plan. She's going to execute this plan. Now, she hears that he's going to go shear the sheep. And apparently what she knew of that was that on those trips, Judah was sexually promiscuous in his activity. That he would go and have sexual intimacy with cult temple prostitutes on the way on this trip. And so she takes off her widow's garments, covers her face, and goes. and, And she says, hey, what will you give to me to know that you will come back and send this later. And so we, we read this and we're like signet all that stuff or whatever. But what that's basically saying is it's saying something like this. That give me your driver's license. Give me your cell phone and give me your Insta handle. I, I need to have these details so that later I can come back. And I can come back and make sure that you're the person who has done this. Now, Judah here doesn't recognize her. Later tries to repay her but can't. Find her. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, Examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila, and I did not know her intimately, and he did not know her intimately again. Judah was commonly practicing sexual immorality. He finds out that Tamar is pregnant, and he is like, Oh no. Literally, the text says, Burn her. Like, he has had this thing against her. He's treated her unjustly. He's married this Canaanite woman. He's had sons with this Canaanite woman. These sons have acted disobedient to the Lord. Now, he is treating her unjustly by not giving the third son as as she should have had. And now he is saying, hey, not only am I going to hold these things back from her, but she also should just be killed. She should be burned. What a double standard. He has treated her so unjustly. But as she's called out, it's like a judge. She's being called out and saying, hey, what what is this thing that you have done? And she says, well, I I did it with whoever these things belong to. And it's a moment of his sin finding him out. And as Judah's response to this, this was a big moment in the story of Tamar and Judah, because his sin has found him out. He has sinned continually over and over again, but his sin is no longer private. But I want you to notice that it says, not that Tamar is righteous, but she is more righteous than I. Because here, is Judah going to be the just one? No. Is Tamar going to be the just one? No. There needs to be a just one to die for the unjust. God is writing a story even in the midst of their disobedience to do this. He is going to reverse the curse. But God, even in the midst of the sin, God is working in that she becomes pregnant. And God is not only working in that way, but what's going to happen next? Verse 27 through 30 says that she has two sons. I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but she has two sons. And this is a whole story about the younger being born before the other. And it's this whole thing again. It's like another set of twins in Genesis. Like, what are we going to do with these guys? But 
Don't get lost on the details, but I want you to see our second clue, and that's this, that even if God seems absent, he is still working to deliver. You see, it was through this line, through the line, like through this illegitimate relationship that takes place in a temple prostitution situation that God uses this mess to make something beautiful. And it is through this line that later would come King David. And later through that line would come King Jesus. Without this story in Genesis, we don't see how the story is unfolding from Abraham all the way to Jesus. We don't see that. We're missing that piece. It would be a missing puzzle piece. Later in Genesis chapter 46, the nation is brought in to Egypt. And as they're brought into Egypt, there's a listing of names. And guess whose names are on that list? These two new brothers. Judah lost two sons because of sin, but God gave him two more in spite of his sin. God was working his story to deliver. But later, in Matthew chapter 1, we find a very interesting name in the lineage of Jesus, and that name is Tamar. God takes this woman who has no place and makes her in the line of Jesus. What a beautiful story. God is working to provide this just one who would die for the unjust, and he is doing it through this woman. God was working his plan in Genesis 38, even though he seemed absent. God was working. You know, growing up, you think about life. When you're in college, you think you're going to meet somebody, you're going to marry them, you're going to have kids whenever you want. And you're, you're going to have a happy life together. And that just wasn't the story for me and my wife, Becca. We were married a few years, and we... We're like, God, we'll have kids whenever you want, but we, we want to trust your timing in this. And uh, so we prayed a lot to see, like, God, when, when would you like, want us to have children? And when we began to try to have kids, we couldn't get pregnant. And it was like over a year's process of us praying and seeking the Lord before God allowed us to become pregnant with our first child. And, and I, I told you last time I have three beautiful girls. And so, so um, you, you know how some of the story unfolds, but you don't know the in-between. In the in-between, on our third daughter, we found out that we were pregnant by complications. And the entire pregnancy, the entire thing, we had visit after visit and anxiety and turmoil internally because of these complications. Every ultrasound was, is there a heartbeat? Is there a heartbeat? Is she still alive in the womb? Like, can I do anything to make this child? All I can do is to pray. All I can do is try to walk in community. All I can try to do is, is do this. And my wife and I, we take turns. Like I would be sad and, and, and down and she would be up and she would encourage me. And then, I, and then it would be the opposite way around. And we would go back and forth for months. And in this process, we ended up having a beautiful little girl. But we had to come to something first. We had to come to the place to where we recognized and acknowledged that God was good regardless of what happened to our situation. 
regardless if we had this child or we lost this child, God was still working. I literally could do nothing to deliver this child. I literally could do nothing to make her grow in the womb, but all I could do is trust. All my wife could do is trust. And so I want to say to you, those of you in the room that are in a place today where you're like, I just don't feel God working. I just don't know how this story is going to end. And I'm not even at a place to where I can say, I know that God is going to be good no matter how it plays out. Can I say to you, this is not a formula, but this is what worked for us. What worked for us was we sought prayer from other people. We sought to be real and vulnerable in community. We tried to memorize scripture. We tried to be in the word. We tried to pray. We couldn't do anything else. We tried to say, God, would you give us the next step? On mornings when we were like, I don't even know if I can face this day, God enabled us and empowered us and carried us along. And I wish I could tell you, do exactly what we did and God will give you the same thing and you will have the desired outcome that you want. I don't know that. But I know that in the middle of where we were, God was still working. And God brought us to a place where we knew God was good no matter if the thing that we had prayed for and asked and begged God to give us, if it actually came to fruition or if it didn't. If we only had two children or if we had three, that we would know that God was good. And I'm excited to say today that my daughter's five years old. And she's going to go to kindergarten this year for the, you know, go to school for the first time in a full-on basis every day of the week. And we're excited about the, the future of where she is. And she's a beautiful little girl. But what story do I get to tell her as she grows? God was faithful to bring you to life for a purpose. And God wants to do something through her. And I would say the same thing to you. God has a purpose for you. And he desires to use you for something. He is not done working. He is working to deliver us even if we don't see it. So what do we do knowing that God is working to deliver? What, what, what can we do knowing that God is working to deliver? First, we need to be sure that if we find ourselves in a situation like Tamar, she was treated so unjustly. She was an outcast in so many ways. We need to see that if we find ourselves being treated unjustly, it's that God sees us in our pain and in our suffering. He sees us. That should give us hope. But let me say this. I, I, I want to be careful in, in a room this size because this might be true. But if you find yourself being treated unjustly in an abusive situation, just because God sees you don't, doesn't mean you shouldn't get help. If you need to get help, get help. Talk to somebody. Don't stay in that. But also don't feel like you're all alone either. Maybe it's not abuse. Maybe it's something else. But whatever you are this morning, maybe you feel alone or you feel that you're treated unjustly. Remember, God is wanting to help you. He wants to walk with you. He literally sent his son to die so that he could have relationship with you. Second is a, is a caution to you this morning. In this text... We see Judah spiral in this downward thing of sin. And we see that sin tends to increase over and over. And, and, and what starts off as a little decision turns into a full-blown sin in Judah's life to the place where he's willing to murder this girl over the same sin that he did. So in your own life, would, would you be careful to confess your sin? Would you not allow your sin that you have to stay hidden in your life? Would you, would you say, 
and I've heard this over and over again, Patrick, if people know my sin, they won't love me the same or they won't treat me the same. And I want to say the opposite, that people knowing you're hurting and knowing you're wrestling and fighting with sin is an invitation into community, is an invitation to step into your life and to encourage you in your struggles rather than to turn away from you. Can I tell you something really profound? Not original to me, but this is really profound. Jesus dying on the cross knew every sin that you would commit, you've committed in your past. He knows every sin you're walking in right now, and he knows every sin you will commit the rest of your life. But he didn't say, hey, oh, I saw that sin, I'm not dying for her. I saw that sin, I'm not dying for him. No, he said, I see all of your sin, and I'm going to die on the cross so that you can have your sins forgiven. Would you realize that you're already loved, you're already accepted if you know Christ? He chose to die for us, defeating death and defeating sin. Would you turn to him with your sin? Would you, would you walk in community with your sin? Would you, instead of running away, would you run in? If you're here and you don't know Christ, not that you don't know things about him, because most people know things about him, but do you actually know him? Would you turn to Christ, confess your sin, and tell him that you're a sinner and ask him to save you from your sin? Whether that's you and you're here and you don't know Christ and you're confessing for the first time, or if you've been walking for Christ for many years, we're all a mess. We're all a mess. We want to put our best foot forward, but we're all a mess in need of grace. And Genesis 38 is telling us that God isn't afraid of our mess. He isn't waiting on us to get it together before he acts. He literally is working and has worked over and over again throughout history so that those who put their faith and trust in Christ could have forgiveness. So the mystery, why is this story in interrupting the story of Joseph? Why is this passage weirdly placed here? It's because God desired us to see his full plan all the way forward to Matthew chapter 1 for us having the whole Bible today to see that Tamar and through Tamar's life that there would be one who was just that would die for the unjust. He has brought about salvation for all who would believe. But without this chapter, we would completely miss Tamar. We wouldn't see her whatsoever. So can I just say, when you come to passages of the Bible and you think, I don't know why that's there. There's a reason. And God is using even those peculiar passages to bring us to hope in the gospel. So wherever you are this morning in your walk with Christ, if you don't know him yet or you've been walking with him for years, would you remember that even if God seems absent, he's still working? Let's pray.